Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono. She was the first Asian American woman elected to the Senate, the first senator born in Japan, and the nation's first Buddhist senator. And as many people remember from the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, she is not shy about speaking truth to power. But she wasn't always that way, as we learned from her new memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Unlike many people in Congress, she grew up poor and knows the struggle of immigrants and poor folks in the AAPI community firsthand. We cover all of that in my conversation with Senator Maisie Hirono. Senator Maisie Hirono, from your home in Washington, D.C. to my home in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Hello. <laughs> so, Senator, I uh, I read, uh, for my job here, I read a lot of political memoirs. Oh, and uh, most, <laughs> yes, I know, most, most of them are boring and self-aggrandizing. Oh, dear. And they, don't name, they don't name names of the people they think are jerks, and, <laughs> but not yours. It's a very compelling story. Thank you. Uh, you name names, fellow <laughs> members of the state legislature, ex-boyfriends, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham. You drop a couple of F-bombs. It's, it's fabulous. But most of all, it's real. Uh, and I, don't, I didn't know much about your backstory before reading this. And it was compelling because, uh, unlike many of your counterparts in the Senate, you, you struggled throughout your life. Uh, you grew up very poor. The grapes of wrath poor, as you describe it. Did you see and the picture? I saw the picture. Yes, dusty, that's pretty dusty. Place. Yes, <laughs> no, no shoes poor uh-huh. a lot. But let's let's start with your mom, Laura. Yes. What an incredible survivor! And my condolences. She she just passed yes, a couple thank of days you. ago too. She was born in Hawaii, went back to Japan. Where she was trapped in a very very bad marriage with your father. Uh, he was a drinker, a gambler. Sold her clothes to pay for his vices. So she realized she had to get out. As you get herself and her three children out of that situation, tell us what she did and how she did it. She had to plot in secret to not only get herself away from my father, who I did not get to know, and his parents, who treated my mother like a slave because they all lived together. And finally, she came to the point where she knew that my father was not going to change his ways. He had hidden from her that he was a compulsive gambler and a, a, a drunkard before they got married. But at one point she finally decided he wasn't gonna change because he said, I'm not changing. And so she plotted in secret to get not only herself, but her three children far, far away from him. And that was really far. <laughs> she put an entire ocean between us. It took tremendous courage and risk-taking behavior for her to do that. She was only 30 when she did wow. all this. It's, a, it's an amazing story. And that is her heart of fire. And she took uh, you and uh, your older brother, I believe, uh, first yes. to Hawaii. And she, but she left your your youngest brother behind. Yes. Let's talk about that a little bit. She had to do that because the two older kids, that would be me and my older brother, could go to school while she was working to support us. And she knew my younger brother couldn't. He wasn't old enough to go to school, and there would be nobody to take care of him. So she made a very tough de- decision to leave him with my grandparents, who raised me, by the way, from the time I was three to before we came to this country. So we all thought, of course, that he was in good hands, but uh, that separation, uh, that trauma stayed with him for the rest of his life. And he had difficulty in school from kindergarten on. You said it had the psychological damage. Your brother, of course, is very difficult for your mother. 
And you said you saw this. Uh, that's why the uh, when the Trump administration was started separating children at the border, this was very personal to you. You you have seen the impact of this firsthand. I knew the trauma and the lasting harm that uh, we were really inflicting on these children. And I knew that Trump didn't give a rip. And when the judge told the, the administration, you have to reunite the children with the parents, they didn't even have the records of where their parents were. So they fully intended to totally traumatize these children. So it is the, the first time I talked about my brother. Uh, I didn't talk about my family very much. Uh, I'm a very hate reserved person, a private person, but uh, th there were so many aspects of my own life that uh, uh, really resonated with everything that we were trying to do from saving the health care of millions of people to family separation and the struggles that immigrants have coming to a country they know nothing about and trying to succeed and build a better life. Those are all things that I lived through. Yes, you were, the, I believe, the only immigrant in the Senate, yes. correct? Going back to your childhood for a second, you um, you say that uh, you were, you know, you're very reserved and such, but but reading The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan was uh, was a very seminal moment oh, for yes. you. Tell us about this. You're a, you're a child of the, of the 60s. but I know, but uh, I, you know, even if I was raised by a very independent, self-sufficient mother, uh, you, I still didn't escape from the, the dominant culture's expectations of, of uh, girls like me, young women like me, where we get married, have children. So there I am in college, I read the feminist mystique and literally a light bulb went on my head, in my head. And I thought, growing up the way I did, why am I thinking that there's gonna be some guy to take care of me? And uh, that, that book was very important to me. And that's why when a magazine uh, put together a pictorial of all the women. There are many more of us, thank goodness, in the House and Senate. They said, bring something that's meaningful to you. And I brought a copy of The Feminine Mystique with me. And that shaped that shaped your 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 thinking as growing up. You didn't you need a man. You you got married at forty. I, I was uh, I was even older than that. <laughs> older than oh, I was forty two when I got married. And I why because getting married and having children uh, were not uh, really high on my list of priorities. And my mother not once did she ask me when are you going to get married? When are you going to have children? She never put that kind of pressure on me for which I am very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Now, when, when you're growing up in, in, in Hawaii, you always, as we alluded to, the poor kid in class, but you made it through college, you, to college in Hawaii, mm -hmm. and you started to get politically active yes. then, correct? Yes. Uh, initially, uh, again, you're, you're about 70, 73 at this point, so you're in the Vietnam War. Yeah, uh, I, gra I graduated student. in 1970 from um, University of Hawaii, so it was during the um, Vietnam War period, and I got involved in uh, protesting the war. It's the first time I ever questioned what our country yeah. was doing. <clears throat> and it was a revolution. And, and initially you were, you had said you had supported the war. Oh, yes. So, and explain why and uh, and what changed you. In high school, I supported the Vietnam War. I believed in the domino theory. We were all against communists. And if Vietnam fell, then so would Cambodia and Laos. I believed all that stuff. But then when I got to college and I got to know some anti-war activists, talked to them and you know what, we were told lies about the Vietnam War. That became very clear. Uh, and so that was my political awakening. And the, one of the anti-war activists on the University of Hawaii campus, a local guy, decided to run for the state legislature. And he was ahead of his time in that he wanted a woman <laughs> to run his campaign. I'd never done a campaign before, and he asked me to do it. And so I did. And 
from that point, I was uh, quite active politically in Hawaii, grassroots politics. You, you came to the States, you went to Georgetown Law School and you returned and got deep involved in it. It took me 15 years to pay off my law school loan. To, to what? <laughs> To pay off your law school. To pay off my law school. <laughs> I can imagine Georgetown. That's that's not cheap. And then, uh, we'll talk to you about when you're involved in politics in Hawaii. You, it was very much a man's world there, and uh, it still is and, to a very great extent. Sexism is alive and well in politics. Yes. Now, <laughs> even now. <laughs> and so, tell us a little bit about that. One of the races. Uh, you were involved in there when you were running for uh, you're in the state legislature, you were lieutenant governor, you were, and then you ran for governor. Um, and you said that uh, this is a race you lost. You said you were, quote, disappointed and yes, hurt by the by the faithlessness of men whom I, uh, I worked for collegially for uh, and very effectively for many years. You say that you didn't have time to lick your wounds because you had to, quote, get by accepting one of the most painful truths of your careers to assume absolutely nothing from those who you might have once counted on as allies, whether they be yes. fellow Democrats or union leaders. Tell us a little bit about yeah. what, what happened there. Uh, when I ran for governor, that was still the hardest race I'd ever run. And even uh, when I announced, uh, you know, the, the powers that be on the Democratic side, uh, they did not th think that I could win. They had absolutely no faith in me getting past the primary. And so uh, there was a group of uh, uh, Democratic leaders who actually uh, recruited the former chair of the Republican Party who had run for governor against one of the Democratic candidates. And there were all these ads about how terrible he was, but they recruited him to become a Democrat and run for governor. And uh, so uh, there were a lot of people telling me, I can't win, don't do it, all of that. Uh, I persevered, and at one point, I even decided to run for another race so that I could keep my hand in the political arena. But it, it was the hardest race, and, and I have worked with unions in particular because I very much identify and support the working people. And uh, so uh, I have worked with all of the major unions, and I kind of thought that maybe they would support me, but they didn't. Um, and, and so that, that was a painful truth that even if I worked with uh, the, all of these people, I supported them, uh, that I should have no expectations that they would support me, that I would always uh, have to ask, never take anything for granted. Um, and so that was the painful truth. And I, I certainly learned from that governor's race to, uh, to do things differently if I ever had a chance to run in another race. And as it turned out, I did. Four years later, I ran for uh, US House. You ran for the House. You won there in, in 2012, I believe. You... I guess uh, there were 10 Democrats running in that U.S. House race, by the way. So uh, that was a that was a really interesting race. People didn't think that I, I uh, could make it because I've been out of office for a number of years. How, how much of this was was people uh, uh, doubting? Was it personal? Did you take it personally? Did you say it was or was it uh, was there sexism involved? Why, why was that doubt there? Oh, there's no question that the women who run for the highest executive office, either in the state or in our country, uh, are uh, faced with a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, sexist thinking. So when I ran for the state legislature, and even when I ran for Congress or U.S. Senate, I didn't have the kind of questioning of, do I have executive uh, abilities? Can I make tough decisions? And I'm not the only one. There are all kinds of studies to show that women who run for the highest executive office get those kinds of uh, questions. 
And so I got them too. Uh, and, and so there, there are these sex role uh, stereotyping uh, and it still exists, but thankfully for a lot of women these days, they don't let those kinds of things stop them from running for office and uh, forging ahead. We'll have more of my conversation with Senator Maisie Hirono after this short break. And now here's more of my conversation with Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono. There was some other uh, stereotyping, I, I believe you encountered when you got to the U.S. Senate in 2012, I believe. Um, is when when your early early days there, early times there, and uh, you had a meeting with a group of other new female senators with Senator Barbara Mikulski. Uh, for those yes. who don't remember her or know her, she was a, a pioneer in the Senate. She's one of the first uh, women yeah, uh, from Maryland. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. uh, she was sort of a dean of the women in Senate of the Senate at that point. And she said in a group of other female senators, she said uh, to you, quote, you've, you've, you're going to have to speak up more and be more aggressive around here. And uh, mm -hmm. you write that in their first few years in the Senate, you were constantly underestimated by your colleagues. Why was that, do you think? Well, I don't know if they gave me very much thought because I was pretty reserved and I managed to, and especially in the state legislature and, and during my time in politics, I, uh, I uh, was a worker. <laughs> I was a workhorse, not a show horse. And so I was, very de I was very determined to get the things that I was pushing for, but I didn't have to be so noisy about it. And, and so I think the kind of the stereotype notion of an Asian woman is we're cooperative, we're quiet, uh, we're reserved. And it's not as though I countered that that much, although I, I definitely stood my ground on the various committees that I sat on, but Barbara was never on any of the committees that I served mm. on. And so she started to tell me how I should behave. And, and I just, you know, I, it, it, <laughs> with the life that I've had, it's not as though anybody handed me anything. So I just said, you know, you, you don't know anything about me. You don't know what it took for me to get here. And, and she immediately apologized and, and, a number of years later, particularly as I became so much of a more of a vocal critic of uh, the horror of the Trump uh, administration, when I next ran into her, she said, I don't know what I was thinking when I said those things to you. And I, I really admire and uh, uh, I, I admire Barbara very much. And we are friends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so we stay in touch. Now, uh, as you say, that's uh, your your. Uh... Uh, you, there was a sort of a change in tone, if you will, maybe become more outgoing <laughs> when uh, Donald Trump became president. Um, what, yes. Explain why that was and, and how that evolved. Uh, there's, I have a definite reaction against bullies. And here was the biggest bully of them all. And he was going after everybody who didn't agree with them. And I, when I got elected to the Senate, I had decided that whatever media I was going to do, I was going to do it with the folks back home. And I rarely talked to the national press. But when Trump uh, came into office and uh, there was a, a moment when he talked about my friend Kirsten Gillibrand of New York going to see him and, and begging him for help. And the innuendo was really uh, atrocious, obnoxious. I was so offended by his innuendo that... Uh, when I was going to my judiciary hearing, there was a spray of all these media people with their microphones. You know, it's a print, print press and the TV and Fox News is probably there too. And and I finally decided that with the, uh, I've been complaining to my my communications director and I was stumping to the um, hearing. He said, 
well, you could just tell them what you just told me. So I said, okay, fine. So I got up and I said, he's a liar. He's a misogynist. He is an admitted sexual predator. And he will go against, he will, he will uh, go against anybody who doesn't agree with him. And so he should resign. And that was it. I kind of walked off. I think the national press, the spirit was quite surprised, <laughs> but there was no going back really after that. And it was a very freeing thing for me to continue to speak out as necessary. I didn't do it to get the attention. I thought it was really important for me to uh, speak out in a very plain way that I have. I don't sugarcoat anything. And pre-COVID days, people would just come up to me all over the country. I would be wherever, in New York, wherever. And, and people would, total strangers would just come and say, thank you for speaking the way you do. And so that was definitely reinforcement, but uh, that is the, the way I communicate very plainly. And uh, I, I say what I need to say, and I, I don't really go on and on about it either. The, uh, and you write in the book that uh, interesting chapter, parts of a chapter about Senator Al Franken, former Senator Al Franken from Minnesota. He was, yes. a, he was a friend of yours. You guys were, were close. You served on the judiciary together, yes. I believe. Yes. And, uh, but you were one of the first Democrats to call for his resignation. Mm-hmm. Um, you say in the you write in the book that you were at peace with that decision, but some Democrats since that time, I, namely Dick Durbin, uh, have said that they would have made a different decision. Why? Why yes. are you at peace with that decision? And what about these others? Women have had to put up with this kind of totally unacceptable behavior from men uh, since time immemorial, and women were in the Me Too time. We were just uh, sick and tired of all of that. And, you know, by the time the seventh allegation came forward regarding Al Franken, uh, it was uh, a cumulative effect because the first few, I said, well, we should let the ethics committee investigate. But by the time the seventh or eighth, there was definitely a pattern here. And so I did call on uh, him to resign. Nobody could force him to, but he resigned and he has, I know, since regretted it. But I have not regretted saying when you behave this way, there are there should be consequences. And what about going to the ethics commission, as Durbin suggested, that he, Durbin says, well, maybe we should have waited till the let him go to the ethics commission. Do you think that would have? I don't know what the ethics committee would have done, frankly. So uh, at that point, though, uh, with, with all all of these other things going on, I, I believe that it was an important decision. I did not make it lightly because. Al was a really good member of the Judiciary Committee, but he had this other aspect to him. Um, you write a lot about the the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, uh, in which you sort of uh, your your superstardom began, I believe, uh, there for for many of us. Um, the uh, you write the part of it that, that the Vice President Harris at the time it was also in the Judiciary Committee was quote furious that Diane Feinstein did not. Uh, immediately give Dr. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford's uh, letter uh, alleging that Kavanaugh had assaulted her to the FBI, even though uh, Dr. Ford asked for it to remain anonymous. Did Senator Feinstein do the right thing there? She did the right thing in uh, in her way of uh, doing things. I, Diane is the kind of person, if someone went to her and said, please keep this confidential, she would do that. And so she was. she's not a prosecutor, she's not a lawyer, and so she, uh, she really, uh, I know that Diane did what she thought was uh, really giving Dr. Ford uh, what she had asked for. 
And that, that's uh, Diane's um, ethics, and I respect it. On the other hand, though, uh, for the prosecutors and the lawyers among us in particular, when we saw that letter, it's the first time that we had uh, even gotten gotten this, some of the specifics of what had happened to Dr. Ford. And uh, we all agreed that it needed to go to the uh, FBI immediately. And, 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 and you know, the, the Republicans have accused us of holding it back for the October surprise. No, that's the kind of stuff they do, but we Democrats, no. It came to light and we immediately got it sent to the FBI. You're truly surprised by it. Yes, we were all really uh, taken aback by the specificity uh, in the uh, in the letter. Yeah, here in California and nationally, you saw the New Yorker story a couple of months ago, criticizing Senator Feinstein, saying that, you know, there's been questions about her mental acuity. You, you work with her day to day. Do you see that? Is she still she still got her fastball? I think that, that you know, the calls for her to resign and all that are uncalled mm. for. And Diane will, will leave when she decides that she cannot do the job for her constituents. There's a little postscript that you have about Dr. Uh, Dr. Ford when she was visiting Hawaii uh, on vacation several mm -hmm. months later, and she reached out to you. Tell us about what happened when you when you spoke to her. I was surprised when I got a call from Dr. Ford. I knew that she liked to go. She and her family liked to go to Hawaii because she serves. And for uh, the, during the turmoil of the Kavanaugh hearing she had to move and you know, she had horrible letters sent to her and all of that. So I was surprised that she was coming back to a sort of a, a thank, thankfully a, a more normal situation. And she reached out to me and, and I, she was still very well known. So I asked her if she would come to my office and she did. And she said, I came to thank you for believing me, supporting me. I was really surprised because of course, as far as I'm concerned, she's the one who took that very brave and courageous step to review what had happened to her, even though she knew that the cards were stacked and that he would probably get confirmed, which he did. So she's just the, the most uh, uh, sincere kind of person. And, and I don't think there's a, a mean bone in her body. <laughs> you called her a patriot in, in, uh, when, when she left yes. in the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, last week, the, uh, of course, the Senate passed the hate crimes and violence against the API mm -hmm. community. Uh, this is your piece of legislation. Yeah. Legislation. Um, why do you think those crimes have been ignored for so long? I mean, we, we've, we're hearing more about them. Uh, they've gotten a spotlight in the last few weeks, but for years and years. They, they have been underreported, certainly in the media and, and elsewhere. Of course. Why is that? There's been a resurgence, or there's been a huge spike in hate crimes targeting Asian American Pacific Islanders. Why? In the middle of a pandemic, when you have the former president calling it the China China virus and his administration, people calling it Kung Flu, I think it creates, uh, not I think, it creates an environment where people with that kind of discriminatory animus against Asians, because we are always the other, we are the perpetual foreigners, and the, the kind of animosity toward Asians have, you know, pops up uh, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, with the internment of over 120,000 Japanese Americans in World War II, the Muslim ban. And, and so the racism has never been far below the surface in our country. And, and clearly we have not faced up to the, uh, the racism against the black community. So meanwhile, we have this pandemic and we've seen the images of 
these totally unprovoked attacks against Asians. They tend, they're usually they're women, they're older people. And most recently, uh, there was an attack where uh, this person stomped on the, the victim's head. It's horrific. And so I put in a bill to gather more data because as you mentioned, these are very un underreported crimes. And I described this bill as it should have been totally non-controversial, but I couldn't get a single Republican to sign on to this bill when I first introduced it. But as it made its way on the floor of the Senate, more people uh, began to, even the Republicans began to probably think about it because how could you escape the images of Asians being pummeled and, and, and all of that? Uh, but they weren't exactly jumping up and down uh, to support it. But I, I worked with Susan Collins who indicated she had some concerns and I addressed those concerns. We had another amendment that was incorporated that was a bipartisan amendment. So pretty soon we began to garner uh, bipartisan support. And the reason I worked so closely with Susan was to broaden the support for the bill while retaining the purpose. Uh, and so by the time the, the bill hit the floor, the, by the way, there were some 20 amendments to deep six the bill and we eventually uh, agreed to take up three of those amendments and they were all defeated. And even the people who proposed those amendments ended up voting for it with the exception of one guy. I, I, well, I want to get to him in a second, but what, but what are the, I don't understand what the objections to this bill would be. I mean, this is, this is it seems like a uh, non-controversial thing to gather more information about crimes for the, for the most part. What, what was the... I think part of it was that I connected the dots between uh, what the president was saying, Trump was saying, and the rise in these hate crimes. And they, they, uh, I, they objected to that kind of a connecting of the dots. That is why it's called the COVID-19 hate crimes bill. And one of my colleagues, Republican, got, gets up and he says, uh, this bill started off as a bitter partisan bill probably because I mentioned there is a connection to what people leaders say about the, about what's happening with the pandemic and what's happening to the AAPI community. And so of course I uh, objected to his characterization, but I think they have a really, uh, uh, they're very sensitive about criticisms about uh, Donald Trump, yeah, yeah. apparently. Well, one, <laughs> one person still voted uh, against it. It was, the vote was yeah. 94 to one. In the Senate, you can't get a yes. vote in the Senate like that for anything, like uh, even if you vote on w whether the sun rises in the east or not. And uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, a likely presidential uh, candidate in a couple of years, <laughs> um, you're very outspoken. What did you say to him after that? Or, or what will you say to him the next time you see him in the hallway? I didn't say anything to him, but what I did say to the press is he gave a really lame excuse for why he wanted to be the lone person. And he is an outlier, even among the, the Republicans, and that's saying a lot. Okay. Now, you dedicate this book, of course, to your mom. And uh, when she, she was able to read the book, correct, before it was, no. or she wasn't? No, sadly, sadly not. Because of COVID and she was in a care facility, mm. I, I could only wave to her mm. from uh, outside her window for over a year. Oh. And this is a, a heartache that a lot of families have yes. gone through. But I went home when she was uh, in uh, described as transitioning. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to spend just uh, maybe an hour or two with her in her room. Um, and she was in a sleep state at mm -hmm. that point, but I did talk to her and I said, mom, I wrote a book for her, for you. And the day that my hardcover 
the first hardcover edition came to my home, I was going to read to her from, and that is the day she passed. Oh. So mm. I, I arranged to have uh, that book cremated with my mother. Mm. So it is, a, it is a comfort to me to know that she had the book at oh, the it's end. beautiful. What do you, Mother's Day is coming up. I know when you when you're writing the book, your your family was not big on celebrating birthdays and and Hallmark holidays. <laughs> it didn't have a lot of cash throw throw out on no. that kind of stuff. But what what would you like your mother's legacy to be? Oh, certainly that she was a person who took control over her life and um, made decisions that changed not just her life but uh, her children's lives for the better. Perseverance. Uh, and I hope that people who read this book will find uh, areas where, where they, they can connect. I mean, for example, you're growing up poor. There are a lot of people in our country who face that. There are a lot of immigrants who face the kind of discrimination. Uh, AAPIs, you know, they're, they're facing discrimination right now. Women who have been underestimated for uh, all of us have gone through that where basically the guys are telling us it's not your turn or wait your turn or you're not ready. Women have experienced that. Women have, have experienced, a lot of us have experienced relationships that may not have been the most positive. And, uh, and of course, cancer. There are a lot of people with the cancer in our country who are, who are battling uh, major health issues. And so when I spoke on healthcare, as we were poised to once again kick millions of people off of the Affordable Care Act, it's the first time... I got on the floor of the Senate and talked about my sister, my baby sister who had passed away in Japan. And it was a, a very difficult moment and for you're me. You're also having a, a, a recovering from stage four uh, kidney cancer yourself at that yes. point, which is a, yes. sort of an underreported <laughs> story. It's very painful. You said, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a light, it's a lighter moment when you say you're, you, you wanted to get in to speak yeah. and you said, well, we can fit you in soon before 11 or so. I, for the time was, you said, good, because that's when my oh, yes. pain meds wear off. That's that's Yeah, it's just the first time I used my health as a, as a way to sort of jump the line a little that's, bit. I, that, that sounds like a fair deal. Well, I'm going to ask you one Senate question. We uh, in, in the uh, upcoming weeks, we have the, the Biden's uh, uh, infrastructure plan. Some people mm -hmm. uh, want one big uh, package. Uh, with both the, the bridges and, and roads and all that kind of stuff. Traditional, what we think of as traditional infrastructure. Uh, there's also a second part worth maybe 1.7 trillion that would be, uh, you know, it's sort of helping folks uh, uh, in terms of daycare providers and, and, and families, sure. family, more family oriented uh, uh, measures. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see? What's the best way? This is a huge, huge lift. What would be the best way forward? One one big package or two? I'd like one big package because I think to limit uh, the thinking about infrastructure as just um, physical structures and not looking at the care economy where so many women need to get back to work. And how are they going to do that? So many women left the job market with, during the pandemic. Uh, they need childcare. They need access to to all of those kinds of programs. And that is just as much a part of infrastructure as we look at getting people back to work. There's the, that, that's why Joe Biden is calling it the, the job creation plan, build back better plan. You know, and, and that's, uh, I would like as big a plan as possible to meet the needs of our country. And the needs are great. You, maybe people on Wall Street, they're 
you know, the one percent of corporations and uh, the richest people—they're doing fine. But believe me, there are a lot of people, millions of people, who are still not working, and they still are struggling to pay rent and put literally put food on the table. There's massive food insecurity in our country, so we need to think big and do big. And you're ready to put Joe Manchin in a headlock to get that done. <laughs> he does sit in front of me, but I haven't gotten to kicking his chair yet. <laughs> All right. Whatever it takes. I like Joe. Whatever it takes. <laughs> the bottom line is, as Democrats, we want to do things that help people and not screw them over. So I hope that that Joe will come to the realization that we can't get these things done uh, if the Republicans are going to continue to stymie all efforts. And I think all indications are they will do that because Mitch McConnell's goal in life is to take back the Senate, which means he doesn't want Joe Biden's big uh, proposals to succeed. Mm. So uh, I think we Democrats know that and we should plan accordingly. Senator, thank you so much for your time. The book is called Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator Ona, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. <laughs> thank you so all right, much. Thank you so much. Aloha. Aloha to you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Senator Hirono for joining us today. I'd like to thank the King, Webby-nominated producer King Kaufman for producing this episode. And a shout out for our fabulous theme music that's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. And remember, no matter whether you were an immigrant to America or a Native American, it's all political.